Chapter Six of Stories of Symphonic Music. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Stories of Symphonic Music by Lawrence Gilman. Section Six. Chadwick. George Whitfield Chadwick, born in Lowell, Massachusetts, November thirteenth, eighteen fifty-four now living in boston dramatic overture melpomene chadwick's three principal overtures melpomene adonais and euterpe belong to that somewhat anomalous class of modern works which occupy a place on the borderline between program music and absolute music music which while constructed according to the classic rules of design rather than in conformity with a poetic or dramatic scheme, is yet devoted to the expression of some mood or idea more definite than that which one looks for in music that is admittedly absolute. In the Melpomene, Adonais, and Euterpe overtures, the composer has given us no clues as to the particular significance of his music beyond those conveyed by their titles, which are, doubtless, in their case sufficient to establish a receptive mood in the hearer the melpomene composed in eighteen eighty seven was originally intended as a companion piece to his earlier and seldom played talia overture that was subtitled overture to an imaginary comedy and the subtitle of the melpomene was intended to be overture to an imaginary tragedy in the published score, however, the subtitle was omitted, and only the name of the tragic muse was retained as an indication of the emotional purport of the music. Footnote. Melpomene, the muse of tragedy, was the third of the nine muses born by Mnemosyne to Zeus. End of footnote. The overture, as has been said, bears no explanatory note or preface whatever. Of its emotional outlines, an indication is given to this vivid exposition of the music by Mr. Rupert Huge. It opens with the solitary voice of the English horn. The woeful plaint of this voice, briefing above the low, sinister roll of the kettle drum, establishes at once the atmosphere of melancholy. Other instruments join the wail, which breaks out wildly from the whole orchestra. Over a waving accompaniment of clarinets, the other woodwinds strike up a more lyric and hopeful strain, and a soliloquy from the cello ends the slow introduction. The first subject is announced by the first violence against the full orchestra. After a powerful climax and a beautiful subsidence, the second subject appears, with honeyed lyricism. Almost before one knows it, he is in the midst of the elaboration, the development or working out section of a composition in sonata form. It is hard to say whether the composer's emotion or his counterpoint is given free rein here, for the work is remarkable both for the display of every technical resource and for the irresistible tempest of its passion. The cheerful consolation of the second subject provokes a cyclonic outburst of grief. 
there's a furious climax of thrilling flutes and violins over a mad blare of brass, while the cymbals shiver beneath the blows of the kettledrum sticks. An abrupt silence prepares for a fierce, thunderous clamor from the kettledrums and the great drum. This subsides to a single thud of a kettledrum. There's another eloquent silence. The English horn returns to its first plaint, but grief has died of very exercise, and the work ends in a coda, conclusion passage, that leaves the hearer with a heart perched white and clean. Elegiac Overture Adonais The score of this overture, completed in 1899, bears the following inscription. In memoriam Frank Fay Marshall, Obit July 26, 1897 its emotional kinship with the great threnody of Shelley is indicated in the title and in the character of the music. It might fittingly bear as motto these incomparable lines from Shelley's poem, which voice in words the precise emotion which has seemed to shape the utterances of the musician. Oh, weep for Adonais, he is dead. Wake, melancholy, mother, wake and weep, yet wherefore? Quench within thy burning bed thy fiery tears, and let thy loud heart keep, like his, a mute and uncomplaining sleep, for he is gone, where all things wise and fair descend. Oh, dream not that the amorous deep will yet restore him to the vital air. Death hits on his mute voice and laughs at our despair. He will awake no more, oh, never more. Within the twilight chamber spreads apace the shadow of white death, and at the door invisible corruption waits to trace his extreme way to her dim dwelling place. The eternal hunger sits, but pity and awe soothe her pale rage, nor dares she to deface so fair a prey. Till darkness and the law of change shall o'er sleep the mortal curtain draw. Concert Overture Euterpe It has been said, authoritatively, that this overture, composed in 1903, follows no definite programmatic plan, that the spirit which animates it is adequately suggested by the title. Euterpe it will be recalled, was the fourth daughter of Zeus and Nemnosyne. Her province among the muses has been admirably stated by Thomas Hayward, that 17th century Englishman of amazing literary fecundity and erudition. Footnote Thomas Hayward, dramatist, poet, scholar, actor, translator, historian, whom Lamb amused himself by calling a prose Shakespeare was one of the most voluminous and indefatigable writers in the history of English letters. He died about 1650. Euterpe, he wrote in 1624, is called the goddess of pleasantness and jollities, said to be delighted in all sorts of pipes and wind instruments, and to be both their inventress and guideress. This is the consequence and coherence betwixt Clio, Footnote, the muse of wisdom, of history, of heroic exploits, and of footnote. And Euterpe, according to Fulgentius. 
we first in clio acquire sciences and arts and enterprises and by them honor and glory that obtained in euterpe we find pleasure and delectations in all such things as we sought entertained for euterpe imports to us nothing else but the joy and pleasure which we conceive in following the muses and truly apprehending the mysteries of discipline and service symphonic poem cleopatra the narrative of plutarch rather than the play of shakespeare has served as the dramatic and poetic basis of this musical embodiment of the tragic history of antony and cleopatra the composer has gone for his basic material to plutarch's life of antony from which according to an authorized exposition those situations having the most direct reference to cleopatra have been chosen for musical suggestion although the action of the tragedy is not literally followed those phases of the tale selected by the composer for particular delineation appear to relate in the order of the place in the score to the voyage of cleopatra up the river sydnos in her barge that barge which like a burnished throne burned on the water the martial approach of antony the passion of the lovers antony's melancholy end and the burial of the pair in one grave the music it was composed in nineteen o four opens with a passage suggestive of cleopatra's voyage upon the sydnos a tonal paraphrase of shakespeare's picture of that wonderful floating pageant the barge whose poop was beaten gold purple the sails and so perfumed that the winds were lovesick with them the oars were silver which to the tune of flutes kept stroke and made the water which they beat to follow faster as a morris of the strokes according to an exposition prepared with the sanction of the composer the music after this passage proceeds as follows in relation to the progress of the tragedy a climax for the whole orchestra is succeeded by an allegro agitato depicting the approach of antony and his army a bold military theme is worked up to a powerful climax but soon dies away in soft harmonies for the wind instruments and horns the cleopatra theme then begins first with a sensuous melody for the violoncello repeated by the violins and afterwards by the whole orchestra strange harmonies are heard in the muted strings the english horn and clarinet sing short passionate phrases to which the soft trombones later on add a sound of foreboding but suddenly the cleopatra theme appears again now transformed to a vigorous allegro and antony departs to meet defeat and death the antony theme is now fully worked out mostly in minor keys and sometimes in conjunction with the cleopatra motif it ends with a terrific climax a long diminuendo ending with a melancholy phrase for the viola suggests antony's final passing and cleopatra's lamentation follows in this part much of the previous love music is repeated and some of it is entirely changed in expression as well as in rhythm and instrumentation at last it dies away in mysterious harmonies 
the work closes with an imposing passage in which the burial of antony and cleopatra in the same grave is suggested by the two themes now heard for the first time simultaneously for this shakespeare's line is perhaps not inappropriate she shall be buried by her antony no grave upon the earth shall clip in it appear so famous End of section 6 Recorded by Monica M.C.